Excuse me. I happened to be passing, and I thought you'd might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. Cream? No, thank you. I take it black. Like my man. there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 60. 60. 60. Zero. Oh boy. I'm really good at that, guys. I'm I know it went flawless. <laughs> you sit me down, you put me in front of a microphone and I see the movies and then I talk about the movies. I don't even remember the episode numbers. Mario's trying on a new personality today. Exactly. It's this. Yeah, it is. It is great. Hey, listen, we're in the world where Will Smith has a $100 million weekend again. You know what's so funny is that nobody really, again? S- nobody really saw that coming. Does he have it again? He, I mean, he probably had a $100 million dollar weekend at some point, right? Yeah, sure. Men um, in Black made some money. I don't think $100 million. Men in Black 2? Maybe, maybe, no, definitely not Men in Black 3. Not Wild Wild West. No. Although it should have. Yeah, I should have. Does Kevin Klein have a $100 million movie? I think that's like a more interesting question. <laughs> Plus Kevin Klein film. Try to think of that one. I don't know. He was oh no, he was in Beauty. And the, yeah, well, he was in Beauty and the Beast. That well, made hundred I mean, million dollars. Suicide Squad, I guess. He has that. He's actually only Aladdin technically didn't cross hundred million dollars in the three days. Suicide Squad's his highest opening. Really, Will Smith isn't the box office driver we think he is. I had to watch some of Suicide Squad the other day. It was not pleasant. It was not a pleasant experience. Why'd you have to watch it? Because it was just on TV when I was hanging out at my brother's house, and we were just like watching it, drinking beers, and shooting the shit. And then at some point, I was in between like the fourth straight like commercial to commercial chunk of this movie. No, it wasn't. It was just like on TV, Um, and they were just having conversations. I was like, "What is this movie? This is an action superhero movie." A villain movie, and they're just talking nonstop and drinking beer and being sad, or whiskey or whatever, and being sad at themselves. It was. It's a bad movie. It was not a good movie. It's actually, I'm pretty sure it's a bad movie. I I don't remember anything about that movie, but I remember not enjoying what I watched. It doesn't surprise me. See what else I sometimes don't enjoy? This beer you brought today. I didn't bring it. You brought it. All right. Well, but you should talk about it. Why? I don't want to talk about this beer. Well, so but this is your I, gimmick. You set this up. No, I did. So set these this are some, I mean, to, so we're, today we're filming back to back. Yep. Um, episode sixty and fifty nine. Live so guys, live from the Pivotal Film Weather Center. Yeah, we're, we're we're recording this podcast instead of in a nice cozy theater watching Godzilla King of the Monsters. That's right. <laughs> it's the sound of me slamming a pen down, and we thought you know since we're here. Filming back-to-back episodes, and the four movies we'll be talking about over these two episodes are lighter and don't need really in-depth conversations, as though we are the most in-depth podcast you've heard of with mm-hmm. our flawless knowledge yeah. of film. Um, we do good. We're having two of the gold standard beers, uh, and I guess like some of the, the films we have 
are going to talk about over the next two episodes are often considered gold standards in their genres. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so this is fair. These are gold standards of the IPAs of Southern Connecticut. And we're starting with the inferior one. Um, counterweights? Can something be a gold standard and inferior? Well, no, everyone loves this beer. I just think it was excellent at first when it was a pantomime, a slightly, a slightly hoppier pantomime of the beer we will drink in the next episode, uh-huh. which is the best beer in Southern Connecticut has to offer, possibly the world. <laughs> um, and uh, then it became a New England-style IPA carbon copy, and I drank it. And I fell asleep. I might fall asleep during this episode drinking this beer because mm-hmm. that's how boring Counterweight's headway has become for me. And Counterweight, I love you guys. You guys do a lot of really great beers, but I would like to see a variation of headway that's like the first time you made headway. Yeah. It's still a good beer. Um, I haven't opened it or drank Let's it. Open it. Uh, but I just, I want, I miss the old one. I miss the old headway. Remember how headway Did tasted? It changed the first? recipe? It changed dramatically. It used to be a really clear beer. Now, if we're pouring this into a can, which you should never do with an IPA, or pouring into a can, Jesus Christ, you dumb. Maybe a tin can? A tin can you, you could are see out of cups? No, but you would have to see it. If yeah. you poured it into a clear can, Pepsi technology, transparent you would notice, aluminum, you would notice that it is a, a cloudy, hazy beer now, whereas it used to be a very crisp, clear, amber-style IPA, mm-hmm. because... They threw a shit ton of stuff into it to make it like every other New England style APA. Let's, wouldn't it be great if I taste this? I was like, oh, they changed the recipe back. Oh, it's back. back. Um, yeah, I don't, I've Ranch never. says is no, it's not back. It's still, I've never thought Headway was a great beer. We've, I've, you know, we've, I've drank it a bunch of times and I've always said, you know, it's okay. It's good. Sometimes it tastes salty, which I've, I've always found to be kind of unpleasant. You need to stop sweating into your beers. Mm. It's, it's a big issue. It's more of a crying thing than no. it is a sweating <laughs> thing. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I do always prefer headway out of the can as opposed to on tap. Maybe that's on an issue tap, too, though. It's always very hazy, and um, when it's out of the can, it at least maintains some of the bitterness that I like in an IPA. It's just I'm I'm told by by people who own Beer Collective, um, great great beer bar here, uh-huh. that the West Coast style IPA is is dying because nobody wants it anymore. I'm like one of the last people in the world who cares about this beer. Do you do you think and the world or do you think like just New Haven? No, like in the countrywide at least. Like countrywide people are pursuing the New England style IPA. Why? Fuck if I know, man. I think they just they, they're like, oh, hops and bitterness, so I don't want to taste that. Yeah, and that's and what instead saying. they just want like juicy bomb beers. And it's like, yeah, come on. Like sure it has its place. It has its niche, but I don't need every single IPA I have. To be just another hazy beer that tastes like kind of stone fruit. And if you're going to do that, do it extremely well. Don't just do like a, an entry level that. Mm-hmm. When everyone's doing that, do something a little better with that. Well, I mean, it's good, you could, I, mean, I, I don't know how long of a discussion we want to have about this, but like, it could be one of those things where this has, we are talking about a lot of movies today. This has become the popular beer because it's easy to drink. You know what I mean? It's not really very complicated. It satisfies like a specific need that a lot of people don't really know that they have. They just want something that's drinkable, that tastes good, that they can pound, you know, at a at a picnic or something. Or when they're like me, sad and alone, just drinking beer, you know, at one o'clock in the morning because you don't want to go to sleep. 
You're trying to watch all the movies that you have to watch. I did you have last, a movie podcast. I did that last night with uh, the third movie we'll be talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of things that are subpar and do things at an entry level, Tom, I have a fun little project for you. I want you to come up with an exciting pitch for me. You get four words. Um, four words for an exciting pitch. <sighs> And something that's really in the pop culture right now. So, you could do evil, uh, reality show, little girl. That's five words. That's I'm five sorry. words. Oh, Jesus. You just say evil reality show girl. Evil reali- reality show girl. No, but it's important okay. that she's little. It's important that she's little, you know, that she says cute like a honey boo-boo, but that like will rip your face off. Remember her? Okay. Remember Honey I do. Boo Boo? I do. Um, okay, so now I want you to uh, explain that a little more. More than four words. Give me a long pitch. Um, Stop. I actually just want you to write those four words. I just want you to take them 90 minutes and use those four words and just do just that. Just do it entirely. over and over and over again? Brightburn, the film from The Young Guns, no relation to Emilio Estevez, or The Young Bucks, is the uh, newest film from the mind ball of James Gunn and his cousin and brother um, directed by I believe new director I know he's done you said some mind bowl right yeah I did say nine bowl uh, David Yorowski. Um he's I don't know if he's made any features um, I did not look into that I know he's made a lot of shorts and he's been a reality show uh, director and it is Great. a movie that is best described as Superman, young Superman, but evil. Who am I? You are a gift. I know it's been difficult for you lately that you feel different from other kids. You are different. baby for so long. For 90 minutes, we get to watch Jackson A. Dunn act, quotation marks, uh, very angrily as the people around him, including Badger, Pam's ex, and the horny woman from the 40-year-old virgin, <laughs> act scared and have some feeling some sort of responsibility to end his streak of terror. There is not much to say about this movie. Um, besides, it's bad. You told me not to see it. I did. I was willing to see it, and you were just like, no, nah, don't, don't see it. It is. There is nothing redeeming in this pile of shit. So not even, like, the gore? Because you said it's the, very gory. The it gore is, is very gory. Is it interestingly gory? Or but is it, just like, it is all digital effects gore like mortal Kombat. um no i mean better but it is that uh good day to die hard live free or die hard deadpool style gore okay um and the kills are pretty uninteresting Mm -hmm. uh if if you're gonna make a movie this by the numbers in terms of just being its premise uh you have to do something interesting um and it doesn't uh Mm -hmm. there is a quasi there could have been a quasi interesting jaw torn off sequence mm. um which they used a prosthetic for the dislocated jaw but then 
threw a shit ton of digital effects on top of it that ruined the effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just ends up being a bore. It is a exceedingly boring film. Uh, I don't like to discredit young actors, um, but Jackson A. Dunn, for one thing, isn't given enough to work with. Mm-hmm. But there is mean. no sense. There is he's often enraged and feel betra- it feels betrayed. Um, has his parents try to kill him? Uh, but it is the most flat child performance I've ever seen, and I'm <laughs> never gonna not you know forgive a child performance since there's an incredible amount of children around that age who have done incredible work. Right. Um, Elizabeth Banks is there for a paycheck. David Denham and. Uh, Matt Jones just seem happy to have. Well, maybe work. maybe she has to. Uh, maybe she's financing Charlie's Angels movie herself. Hopefully, she needed it. Hopefully that. I, you know what? I'm think that might be five okay. of the six that's million. Good, do- five of the six million dollars this movie cost. I will say that the six million dollar to possibly twelve million dollar budget um, doesn't look bad. It's 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 a good looking film in terms of its production value. It's it's surprising that they made it on that sort of budget uh-huh. uh, a film like jigsaw cost 10 million dollars and it looks you know half as good uh-huh. or you know the saw like a saw 3d was filmed in 3d so that was obviously gonna cost more but films horror films of that ilk have um cost more and look worse and have less production value mm-hmm. but this is just not interesting um the only thing i could take away from it is that the long-standing childhood thought of Mario has been when Superman speeds in the people and knocks them over, those people should explode. <laughs> in this movie, they explode. And oh, that, that was, must, I was it was like ten like ten seconds of happiness when nice. Brandon flies into a guy and the guy just explodes. And I was like, Yeah that's supposed to happen. Like in the Matrix when he like Neo like flies into Agent Smith and then he just blows him up. Um, like that? Or do you just, like, fly through him? He flies kind of through him, and there's just a a, huh. a, a lawn full of, of body parts. Cool. And gore. And he uses his laser vision to blast a hole through his dad's head, which I thought was going to be really cool. And then I was like, oh, right, this is all CGI and looks like shit. This movie looks like shit. Hmm. Like, in terms of its gore. In yeah. terms of its production, it looks great. Um, it looks great for what it's doing, like, for how much it costs. But if you're going to make this, you know, go go deep in it um and, and like i read a reddit asked me anything with the director and he's like what like somebody asked him like why didn't you just try to pursue practical effects in some scenes he's like nobody does practical effects because apparently he hasn't seen fedia alvarez's um you know evil dead remake or uh adam smith adam i remember his last name the hatchet series which revel in uh practical effects for less less of a budget. I mean, I would assume... And I can understand, like, yeah. mixing CGI and that, but well, this is just, like, really shitty CGI yeah. But I figure, like, you would do as and much I, like, this is the only stuff. reason I wanted to see this movie. I was right. like, this might have good kills, because I was not expecting this to be good. No, but I thought it looked mildly interesting. It was an interesting idea for a movie. It was an interesting idea, but you have to flesh out ideas. Yeah. You can't say, young Superman, but evil, and be like, hey, guys, listen. This is it. Mm-hmm. It's just young Superman being evil. He, yeah. There's no like growth into his evilness. Mm-hmm. He just kind of like finds out he's Superman, and then the ship tells him to take the world, and then he's just evil. He's breaking little kids' hands. He's blowing. They, they, you know, shooting glass into people's eyes and is tearing there, them apart. Is there and, ever like any Freudian slips where they almost call him like Clark Kent or Superman? 
No, but it's 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 so on the nose that that, 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 that part to. that part's silly. And there's a there's a mid credit stinger with Michael Rourke, uh, while Billy Eilish's um, "Bad Guy" plays, which is a song I actually like. I don't, uh-huh. know, I don't know why I like that song. I've not, not heard it. Um, it's like kind of like a remix of it, where he talks about uh, evil manfish terrorizing the seas and a witch who uses a rope to strangle people. Wink, wink. Evil Justice League. It is just a fucking piece of shit. So this is Bizarro Superman, baby Bizarro Superman. Yeah, but Bizarro Superman. That's saying. Bizarro Superman is trying to be good. That's true. Like, and he's in, from in the Bizarro, Bizarro world. He's yeah. not just from nowhere. Like Bizarro is trying to be a good. Like he has like some you know yeah. actual depth and, and dimension. This kid is just nothing. Yeah. This movie's just a bunch of nothing. Well, that makes me sad. It's a big nothing burger. (laughs) With mayo and lettuce on the side. And the mayo's on the side. Why would you get the lettuce on the side? No, you don't get the option. And the mayo's on top of the lettuce. And you ask for the mayo inside the lettuce, like a a lettuce No, you don't ask for that. You ask for a nothing. You ask for a burger with lettuce and mayo on top of it. And the burger is the premise. And the mayo and lettuce are going to be the flavor. And you get the lettuce with the mayo on the side, and that's a bad CGI gore. And the nothing burger is yep. the premise that never got grilled. So in this scenario, that, in this, this scenario this the with. lettuce and the mayo are CGI'd onto mm. the side next yeah. to the burger. Exactly. And badly done. Yeah, yeah, and they just kind of float there weirdly. And it doesn't move exactly in time when you carry it back to your, your table to cry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good analogy. Yeah. I don't think so. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> um, so the movie I'm going to solo talk about this week is um, the new Olivia Wilde high school graduation party movie. Superbad uh, 2019, basically? <laughs> Superbad 2049. No. Um, starring Ryan Gosling <laughs> and Harrison Ford. Could you imagine that if Dave Bautista was in this? That would be awesome. That would be great. Um, there, there are places in this movie for Dave Bautista. No, it is uh, Booksmart. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Nobody knows that we are fun. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. I'm incredible at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on the SATs. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. He broke art rules. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. Picture this. I'm a bag of dicks. Put me to your lips. Hand sanitizer. Chap- Chapstick. Chap- Mace. Listen, it is very important that you keep the safety. Oh! Ah! Don't shut In Booksmart, uh, Amy and Molly, played respectively by Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein, um, are the overachieving, um, you know, A plus do-it-all students at uh, their L.A. high school. Um, They find out at some point that all of the time and effort they have been putting into getting these these high marks and getting into good schools and and developing their post-high school, um, you know, agendas and careers and ideas about the world, um, which have come at the cost of getting to know any of their fellow students or getting to enjoy high school or really any aspect of life other than each other, um, were for not as all of the slackers and losers that they think they go to high school with are apparently all going to Ivy League or borderline Ivy League schools. They then... Um, set out in a, um, you know, a cliche wagon of a movie 
to a certain point to have go to a party and have all of the high school experiences that they can have or that they should have had um, all in one night. Um, hilarity ensues as they end up at one different party after another trying to find the address for the party they want to go to in which the two people that they are attracted to will be there. Um, Ryan, um, who Amy um, is attracted to and has never decided to speak with. Uh, she's like a skater chick. Um, Let's see you later, boy. And, um, yeah, there you go. And Nick, who is the class vice president, but who is a slacker, and but who is also going to uh, Stanford to do something or other. It doesn't make any difference. Um, this got you got cameos from Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte and Mike O'Brien as a pizza guy slash strangler, um, which is pretty good. Um, and Jason Sudeikis as a principal slash Uber driver whose uh, van is tricked out with chili peppers and lights. Um, and Jessica Williams, who plays a teacher who, you know, expounds to the girls how they need to live their lives and not be so focused on school because then they'll end up just like her, um, who apparently didn't do anything in her 20, until her 20s. And, 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 and the, by the end of this movie, ends up having sex with a high school student, which is apparently okay. Um, I read a, a bunch of stuff about this movie calling it kind of like a feminist manifesto. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a feminist manifesto. I think it's um, interestingly more of a humanist manifesto. Um, to that point, though, to get to the parts that are really interesting about this movie, you have to suffer through an hour of really tired high school movie cliches. Like, tired to the point of it, it being exhausting. Like... How much do you want to see high school students strut down some kind of, you know, hallway or street or whatever, decked out in some kind of clothes while rap music plays? I mean, because that's what happens in every high school movie now. Um, and it happens literally every 10 seconds of this movie. Um, there's all, you know, there's, there's click, there's, uh, you know, a few clicks and... What have you? And it's 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 weird. It's a weird movie to talk about because while you're watching it, unless you really feel like you want to like this movie on political grounds, you're going to be not very interested um, until they actually get to the party and they discover, and we as the audience discover that all the pe like the problem people in this movie have not been the students, like the other students that go to the school. You know what I mean? The problem people have been the two lead characters who have been um, in their thinking that they're above all of their other classmates, um, have kind of walled themselves off from any experience. Um, they are the elitists. They are, um, they've made themselves the outcasts. It's really strange and kind of nice for a while that this happens because that doesn't usually happen in these high school movies, you know, like you don't find out that the two main characters were wrong the whole time. And that everyone else is kind of really awesome. Um, I mean, it's a very toothless way to go about it. Just saying, like, well, no, everyone is really good. Except for the strangler guy. But even the strangler guy is really funny, and he lets them go. He doesn't strangle them like like he should have He should have strangled them. Um, I don't know. I would recommend going to check it out. Um, it's pretty competently directed, I guess. Um, Olivia Wilde really likes dappled sunlight. Um, 
Dan the Automator's soundtrack is really um, obnoxious and just in your face all the time. But like all of these movies, every time I see another one of these movies, it makes me like Lady Bird like that much more, which I think is an okay thing. Like if you really want to like Lady Bird a lot, you should see this movie because it'll make you just wish that it had been half as complicated or featured half as interesting a character as, um, as Cesar Ronan's or half as interesting a performance as Cesar Ronan's performance. I mean, this is a good movie. If I was grading this, I would give it like a B minus because there's good things to recommend about it, but it's ultimately not. It's a hard the leads. Like I, I really like what Caitlin Dever has been doing and she's still like a really young actress and Beanie Feldstein's, Following a good like trajectory as her brother, um, mm-hmm. I think at times even kind of funnier. Like she has a little bit better of a comedic timing. I think than she's fine. Um, it's very. Which one? Been, been, they're both fine. Too. The movie is very scripted. So if I kind of I kept waiting for either of them to have a moment that really um, let them do something that put them or... over the top. You know, as a as a as a role and a, like and showed what they can do as a performer. I mean, as it is. They're just reading lines, and when they are given room to improv, they kind of waste it by just, like, saying how pretty they each look. And those comments aren't very interesting either. Well, because she's... Beanie Feldstein's great in... Speaking of Lady Bird, like, she's excellent in Lady Bird. She's great, and that's the thing, but she's her character in Lady Bird is way more complicated. Yeah. Even though this movie should be more complicated, it just isn't. You know what I mean? And I don't know if it's Olivia Wilde... There's, I mean, there's so much pop music in this movie. It's insane. So every time someone is not speaking... and like, is there a lot of shots of Jason Sudeikis' butt, too? No, there's no shots of Jason Sudeikis' butt. Damn. But there is... I was hoping that since they're engaged, I might get some Jason Sudeikis' butt when I watch this movie. No, no, no. Damn. No, no, no such luck there, Mario. But, um... One day. Olivia Wilde, your follow-up film. Jason Sudeikis' butt. If bit. she gets a follow-up film, this movie is going to make no money. Um, but that's the thing. It needed to be... But there's a lot of articles about, like, how that's, like, a shame. Yeah. No, but it isn't a sh- But that's the thing. I think people are saying that it should make more money just because of the the nature of what it is. And I don't really want to do this, like, the, like... Um, well, it had, it had an awful advertising campaign. Like, that's... Well, that's whatever. And, you know, but if you see it, if you see it, and like I said, unless you really... Unless politically this is really where you want to go, and, like, you just have to... But even Nicolette, who swings that way like politically you know what i mean just like from a a feminist polemic perspective wasn't like overly moved in that kind of way here you know what i mean it's not it has overtones of that but ultimately it's a fairly standard issue high school movie replacing the men with girls and replacing the kind of the problems of high school students with the non-problems of ultra rich high school students you know what I mean? Um, so it's a fa- it's a fairly nice movie, which I which I think is good, but it ultimately leaves you kind of just wondering, like why I just watched. Like, you know, she would have figured this out anyway. You know what I mean? I yeah. think that's the interesting thing about Ladybird is that like Ladybird had to go through what she went through to figure some shit out about herself. I'm pretty sure when um, Molly gets to Yale, you know what I mean? That people are just gonna be that she's gonna figure out that like holy shit I should have done some. Well, and Lady Bird has that scene where it's just like she still hasn't figured anything out. Still in college, you know, she's still well, she's growing. She, she's still wor- she's still working on it, but she to get to that place 
she needed to go through all this other stuff. You know what I mean? She had to have all this stuff stacked on top of her. Molly doesn't really need to have anything stacked on top of her. All this work is really done in like a first bathroom confrontation scene where everyone's just like, yeah, I'm a sl- I'm, like, I'm, I don't care about sc- school. is just not the only thing I care about. I'm good at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on SATs. No. Is what one of the girls is that says. Still, wait, 1560? Is that still They went school? back. Yeah. They went oh, they back, went back to 1600, yeah. It was 2,400, and now it's back to 1,600. Oh, I was like, that's a yeah. bad score. Um, so do you think maybe it has something to do with um, the, the background that these actor-directors are coming from? Like Olivia Loud comes from a very mainstream kind of stage direction, whereas I something don't, like Greta Gerwig comes from an independent, I think, looser kind of I don't think so. Direction. I think maybe, but I think it's that Olivia Wilde was being too fair. You know what I mean? Like she didn't want to throw anybody under the bus. So the only person that got thrown under the bus was the Strangler. But even he was a nice guy. Take that, Michael. You know what Bryan. I mean? And in Lady Bird, at various That's points, Michael Bryan, right? Yeah, okay. who, who I love, who I love seeing in movies. Um, Lady Bird, at various points in the movie, throws lots of people under the bus, mm. or at, you know, throws fucking Lady Bird under the bus, and she's not just hurting her friends; she's hurting like everybody around her, including herself. And in this movie, even when Molly and Amy get into a big fight, there's no repercussions from that you know what i mean there's they just their friends i mean amy goes to jail but apparently her parents don't know that she went to jail so molly goes and bails her out and it's just like and then they drive through a fence you know in a car with flames on the side to get to their graduation so it's like where's the well there's no stakes here who cares so you're saying this is a movie where there's no repercussions there's there's no sense of of reaction to the issues so it kind of ends up just being fairly standard high school movie even probably yes yeah fairly standard high school movie maybe even a little less standard you know it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to talk about now though a movie that possibly has a lot of stakes with a person's uh, actions and the repercussions of such actions this is Anya Adamczyk Mies Olivska Mrs. Adamczyk do you swear solemnly that your daughter was born with a rare neurological condition that renders the passage of time an enforced illusion from the external world? Judge, please. I just can't seem to get going until later at night. Do you think I want to be late? Those people deserve a show. And you have no idea the hell that I've been through. I am wishing there was any way on earth I could get going, but I just don't think I'm going to make it. Promise me, Mama, when I die, have the coffin arrive half So I'm assuming the movie you talked about, we're talking about, is the movie we just heard from, which is Alex Ross Perry's new film, Her Smell, starring Elizabeth Moss, the great Dan Stevens. I officially love seeing Dan Stevens and things. When oh, yeah, I see Dan Stevens and stuff, realize, I'm just like, yes, I didn't Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens in this movie, and I saw like him initially, and um, I was like, because he doesn't look like Dan Stevens. Right. But he, got but he does. He's got those. He's got the fucking. He's got that Dan, presence. He's got the Dan, Dan Stevens eyes. And I looked it up, and I was like, "That's fucking Dan Stevens." Fucking Dan Maze Stevens. Misused. Um, go ahead. I don't think he's misused, but we'll, we'll argue about this. No. We're a half hour in. We can do another <laughs> half hour. Um, Her smell is the story of. That's not the fucking story. I hate when we say this. This story. We've got to get better at that. By the time we get to episode one, we're reviewing new movies. We have to stop saying the story. We have to be able to synthesize what the story is without saying did I say, the story. Did I say story for Brightburn? I think I did, huh? I don't know. We say it, you and me both say it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not singling out one of us here. It's just I know. both of us. Um, 
in her smell, Elizabeth Moss plays Becky Something, who is the lead singer of a band called Something She. Um, they came out, you know, in the 90s. It's supposed to be like a, a 90s alt-rock band. You got that nice Spin magazine in the beginning. Spin magazine cover. It's the biggest deal in the whole world. Um, the rest of the band is filled out by Mariel Hell and um, Ali Vanderwolf, played by Agnes Den and Gail Rankin, um, respectively. Um, when the movie opens, they are playing a show. And after the show, we see that Becky is crazy. And we get to watch a scene with her being crazy while trying to have like a ritual performed on her um, and her baby, her daughter to kind of ward off evil spirits that like her ex-husband, Dan Stevens, um, new girlfriend might be, might be bringing before she lets her take the baby. Um, it's a kind of, you know, Cassavetes meets Robert Altman type Oh, yeah. type thing, you know that's, what I mean? That's Where actually, that's really fair. It's just like, you know, the camera's just spinning Which around, it never stops 100% moving. 100% explains my feelings about sure. this movie. Nobody, um, you know, sometimes you don't, you can't see who's talking, like someone's talking, but like the camera's not on them, and the camera goes to find them, and other people are talking, and characters just kind of jump in. I mean, I, I, the interesting thing I about think, this I movie... I think the camera work and blocking this is solid. I think it's really good. Yeah. No, no, but I'm saying, in, um, in all the Altman movies, they are too. But it's it's not like a typical rock and roll movie where you just move and that's the thing I kept trying to find like um it's not rock static. and roll movie um precursors for this or like related films and you can't really find any because all those hue really closely to the standard issue like movie thing where well, it's just say, like scene 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 I would say most rock and roll films either have a really locked in camera and, and locked in blocking or really um floaty and not really dreamlike, but but really floaty and kind of mm-hmm. just well, gazing like voy- through. Whereas this is really like, this is really ephoral. Like it's a, it's a really kind of like well, so no, ephoral this... in the sense of it, it's really obeying the rules of perspective, and you're never like lost like a Cassavetes film. But like it is still jaunty and, you're not, and weird. No, yeah, but you're, it's not voyeuristic in the sense that it's not spying on anybody. No, no, it is there. right there. It's right there, but it's also got like a jauntiness to it. It's got, it's got kind of like a jerkiness to it. I suppose to, kind of to yeah, to I think carry to, out. I kind of to me, uh, it, it very much carries. I don't want to say the mise en scene, but it carries out the kind of mind state, um, the, the state of mind that that you know Becky something. Sure, did. yeah, because um, it, it settles in that like fourth sequence. Um, like yes, the camera sets just itself sits. down. Yeah. yeah, which is great. And so that's one of the things. So we get instead of a movie per se, we almost get like a five act play. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, where the sets change, we get five sets essentially. Um, we get five scenarios that are all you know related to the same scenario, which is that Becky needs help and that Becky is in danger. Um, before the end of the movie, spoiler alert, where on some level she kind of works it out. The interest, I mean, I really like this movie a lot. Um, it is doing all the things that I want a movie to do. It is not easy. And, you know, you can call me pretentious fuck if you want or whatever you want to call me. Um, I like the, no, not, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I'm talking about like well, other people. To, I was ready to. But. Um, it wants a lot. It expects a lot from you. You have to be invested in Becky's Beckiness 
to get into this movie, you have to be all in on the Elizabeth Mossness of what's happening here to get into this movie. Um, you have to be okay with the fact that Cara Delevingne can't play drums. You have to be okay with that because she can't, <laughs> she can't play drums at all, which is, I think, a really funny thing in this movie is that um, Alex Ross Perry cast actors before musicians because none of the people in The Acres can play their instruments at all. And I know it's supposed to be punk, and that is super... I mean, that's a good super punk band, but if I'm a punk band that had songs that good, I'm getting a better drummer. I'm just, I'm just doing it. I'm just, I'm just getting a better drummer. Um, but it's like really... Like Dan DeHaan? Who? Just making a nice Valerian joke. Oh, no, not Dan DeHaan. Just, unless he can play drums and Dan wants Dan to dress Han. up as a girl. <laughs> Um, no, because Gail Rankin can't play drums either. She's not really not like a, a super drummer either. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I think this movie's really exciting, even when it's not really doing anything, and like the scenes go on for too long, and you kind of stop caring about her after a while. You just kind of want something bad to happen to her, so she'll just move on to the next thing. Um, I find it real. I like just found it really compelling. So this was. This was a Toronto Film Festival movie. This came out last year at the Toronto Film Festival um, in September. And then I think he worked on it for a little bit more. And then it just released in very limited release um, like a month ago here in New Haven. And then on demand also. Yeah, it quickly went um, And it's, it has almost no – it didn't make any money, obviously. It, I didn't read a lot of press about it. You know, there was some press, I think, about it when it first opened. I, when, when it came out at the Toronto Film Festival, but it seems like people have just kind of shunted it off to the, like, pile of Alex Ross Perry movies that he's made that no, that nobody seems to really care about except for Listen Up, Philip, and they don't really seem to care about that one either. Hey, probably Don DeLille is waiting for the names to come out, bud. Then the names, yeah. So, he's, you know. He we'll he's wrote a screenplay and optioned the film. Yep. Which actually I could see him doing well. Sure. I think I like Alex Ross Perry um, I, he's a lot. quasi-pretentious to me. Like, like he is to in, me too, but I think when he's doing good things, they are really good. I mean, I've seen, I've seen Listen Up, Philip. Um, I want to say I've seen Color Wheel. I, I haven't seen Impolux, but have I seen Color Wheel? I've seen Color Wheel. I have seen Color Wheel. But it's pretty forgettable. My problem with this movie is is it's it is in Matt Altman style. It's a hundred and thirty one minute oh, or so yeah. long movie, um, which is fine. Um, but in Matt Altman style, it is long, and it kind of begs the question a way too long for me in those first three acts. Of, which is the question? Uh, not begs the question, but in the sense of like, what is this like? woman's problem and it continues to to show that over and over again and i needed that to be tighter because like in the first two acts um those first two performances uh, the performance in the studio like yeah, the performance no, po- say, no performance i would in the actually say one. the first and the third one were okay. extremely well um but once you throw in that studio aspect it i, I get to that third scene you know, where the Aka girls have become famous and Becky something's yep. kind of a mess and they're waiting for her and then she stumbles on and then she has that really long stage scene where the audience is still screaming but they don't know what's going and on. She's in handcuffs, handcuffs and she's got blood on her face. And by that point, I had, like, and the personal shaman's still there. By that point, I start 
tuning out mm-hmm. it too much because like at this point you have established that she's a mess and there hasn't been a con- further downward trend to well, me. there is. It's subtle. I, it's subtle by the like. So that it's last subtle. That, but, the third scene is really that kind of like, like the crash landing. You know what I mean? It's it's the it's the most bottom that she can be. Do we? I don't think so though, because I think dropping her baby in a drunken stupor and almost vomiting on her baby basically is worse than you know performing like not maybe not I for char- maybe not for the character. I think it's worse, but I think what Alex Ross Perry is saying is that she still wanted that baby there. By the time we get to the third thing, there's not a mention anymore of a baby. But they there's really, not even a semblance of normalcy anymore. But they really heavily in that first act have the, the constant discussion of like that baby is my destruction, blah blah blah. Get get her out of there. Yeah. Um, and so it's still like this back and forth kind of schizophrenic style of thought that is then carried through to that third act. Um, third, I guess. Yeah. Third I think act, it's third. Basically. I think the thinking yeah, of it as a five act, act thing is, is really is. Um, you can do that. It's five acts. And, and the interesting thing is, is, is definitely with that studio scene is there's kind of like a brief bump up. And all it's showing you is that like time is passing her. Um, Howard, Eric Stoltz's character is like tired of her shit. Who I think is pretty good in this. It's good, yeah. And I think all the performances are good. I think Dan Stevens is just kind of used as like a, a support. And, and maybe that's my old personal bias. You think it should be the I Dan Stevens Dan, movie? It should just be like Dan Stevens should be more of a focus. Um <laughs> And, and so by I found myself by the fourth and fifth acts, which I think are, are, are the, str- the strongest acts, and, and I think that's the intention, is mm-hmm. we really let Elizabeth Moss like chew into this performance, <sighs> this character. Um, by that point, I'm so exhausted. Mm. Uh, and it's I can not, see it's that. It's not boring. It's it's not never boring, but you you're you're worn out. But you you have got got to the point where you do no you no longer want Becky something to have redemption. You want her to fucking like die. <laughs> At least well, I personally felt that way. Like I had seen this person like have, and and you know it, it's great in 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 the human sense that she has some sort of redemptive arc. But you know, there's always for me, and maybe once again this is another bias. Um, this this veil of the fictional character, wherein if I am dedicating time to this character, at some point I have you know, really tuned out to the character and, and, and invested in their complete self-destruction. Uh-huh. And I think Alex Ross Perry just leans too heavily in establishing how fucked this woman's life is. Um, and, and, you know, Elizabeth Moss really digs down into just being the most fucking awful person. And she does a good job of yeah, that. I, um, yeah. that. That by the time, you know, you feel bad for her in that fourth act and by the time she finally has a, a turn in the final act... I'm just like, mm, this isn't satisfying because mm. like I have spent an hour and thirty minutes, yeah, endur- like hour, it's about thirty minutes enduring this woman's just relentless well, destruction so, of the people around her. And here's what I'll say, and I think this relates directly to Alex Ross Perry as a filmmaker, is that if you, he's going to ask you, it's very pinchy in this movie too. I mean, it has, it has some like pinching overtones of like characters who are constantly pieces of shit. Who don't well, have anything? I, who don't get yeah. that kind of like um, Greek, you know, style, uh, uh, re, you know, 
turn on them. They he like, I a, mean, his Pynchon's like a big influence on there's him. There's no think, irony to it. There's no irony to it, but there's also, I think, Pynchon-esque is that there's just characters that just kind of come in and out and play, like, have a significant thing to say. They play a and chorus. And then they disappear. They play a chorus, yeah. And that's and that's the thing that happens in, like, Pynchon books all the time. They'll be like, oh, there's this guy. And then you'll be like, wait, what happened to that guy? But it doesn't matter. They're gone. doesn't matter what happened to that guy. Um, I, think, I think it boils down to, like... Because in all of Alex Ross Perry's movies, he is asking, he's asking something very specific from the audience. So in like Listen Up, Philip, he's asking you to find some place in your heart that you can keep Philip. You know what I mean? Um, and still think well of him, even though he's like the most terrible motherfucking bastard like in the history of literature. I think the same thing can be said of Queen of Earth. More like Elizabeth Moss and Cas- Elizabeth, Mo- Elizabeth Moss and Catherine Waterston. There's a lot of THs in that one. Um, are just kind of sniping and picking at each other all the time, and it's just kind of bougie. You know, my life stinks because like I don't have a boyfriend, or my life stinks because of you know there's too much pressure on me. Blah 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 blah. And like you have to. He wants the audience to pull the the relevant emotions out of these people and not just accept what he's putting on the screen, which is people that you don't really you don't want to root for because they don't deserve your your rooting interest. And the same thing the, the same thing in Golden Exits to a point where he's just like none of these people are very good. We're going to move through this whole movie and there's going to be one generally good person but even she is making bad decisions and then at the end of the movie literally everyone has made a bad decision. Nobody has told the truth. You don't get the feeling that, like, when this movie ends that anything really is going to be resolved amongst these people. But, like, for this one second where the movie ends, you're like, oh, okay, it's resolved. And, and, and especially, the same thing especially in here. Christopher Robin where Christopher, Christopher – you just Robin, really yeah. fucking hate Christopher. I just like how he co-wrote that movie. Well, he wrote – I mean, he wrote a movie called Nostalgia, which came out in 2018, which I was, like, really excited for because it's just – it's, like, related to stuff that I've been thinking about in terms of, like, what your things represent to – you know, in the larger scheme of, like, who you are as a person. Um, but if he's not directing it, it's not interesting. You know what I mean? Like, he's not a... He's a good writer. He's not, like, an all-time great transcendent writer of movies. Mm. So if he's not directing it and doing interesting things with the camera and, like, choose, like and, and, and manipulating these performances and manipulating where people are and all this other stuff, it's not really that interesting a movie. There's definitely a necessity with his writing um, to, to incorporate kind of the visual aspect. Sure. And, yeah, and yeah. The performances, yeah. Uh, the direction of the performances with, um, you know, the writing. I don't think he's the strongest writer. I think he's a good writer. He's a good writer. He's like um, a B plus writer. I mean, he's better than like a Gallo, who's, who's influenced by. Well, um, <laughs> he didn't write things. Did Gallo not write anything? No, he wrote them, but I'm not sure how much he wrote oh, them. Oh, I see what you're saying. To um, me, though, I think I think this is interesting and it still feels like, uh, like I said, not super familiar with Perry's previous works, but he feels like a growing kind of director he's what 34 ish um yeah uh, yeah 34 um son of a bitch yeah older than me (laughs) uh he's i still still think he's finding that voice and finding that timing i don't think he has he has the performances down he's able to block out scenes he's able to write interesting characters but i think that the pacing and the timing still off mm-hmm. and I think he's maybe still too influenced by something like Robert Altman or, 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 or the people who kind of like languished and I hate fucking hate Robert Altman because he just languished in his characters and would not there, would, there was no sense of of, mm-hmm. of like pace I turned it down. Um, with it, it. Got it. 
Uh, no sense of like pace. Got it. I got that my voice is deep and low now. Um, <laughs> no sense of of like pace with with Altman's work, whereas you see a tonality here, but it's just like. It has like this this jam of fat in it. It's like a good piece of steak that right in the middle has a drizzle. I respond the way that I'm kind of, and we're going to talk about this next in two weeks. Like the way that I'm kind of responding to movies now in 2019 is that I I'm kind of getting off on the idea that like it's a everything's a work in progress. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we get to see like a piece of raw material almost, which I think is what this is. And I think he just leaves subtle markers to distinguish between, like, Becky fucked up here and Becky fucked up in this scene and Becky fucked up in this scene. Like, where do we get... And, like, I think he leaves subtle markers into, like, how we should interpret, like... Because we never see her do any drugs. Yeah. But we do see her say... We see her drink a lot. We see her drink, but we don't see her do any drugs. We do see her say, though, like, in the middle... Between the third and fourth act, when she has the baby, and she's, like, sitting on that patio and they have that... that, um, you know, the camcorder footage and she's holding the baby and she's smoking and she's like, oh, I don't want to tour anymore. I just want to stay home with the baby. Um, and then Dan Stevens comes and like takes the baby and she's like, oh, can you take this baby? Um, it makes me wonder, uh, speaking of like feminist polemics, like it makes me wonder if this is a kind of like postpartum psychosis movie and not a drug movie. No. You know what I mean? Where they're they're He's everyone just assumes she's on drugs, but in reality, what she needs is someone to like sit down and like help her overcome like which, you know, which these identity problems that she's having, which this having this baby has like exacerbated to a point where she can't function anymore. Which I mean, like it could be subtly because it does open with her pretty normal, like that mm-hmm. that opening like scene uh, before the title card. Of of her celebrating being on the cover of the magazine, and yeah, the first couple of she's, those. She's are... still an intense yeah. kind of neurotic personality, mm-hmm. but um, you know, nothing compared to what she's become by that first scene. Right. That kind of gets the idea of like fame's got to her head, and maybe there's drug and alcohol issues, but that actually is is a possibility. Um, in terms of responding to like, I, I agree with you. I do like the rawness of it. I, I think I respond more to it in genre, mm-hmm. um, and Alex Ross Perry is definitively not genre no like no, no. this is not a really genre film so it's hard to get these personal narratives for me i'm still not a place where I, like the personal narrative works for me without like a clean like a, a somewhat of a cleanliness to it or, I rawness, that. Yeah, yeah. or rawness that's like really personal and this still feels slightly uh, impersonal um, right like like it feels intellectually like like a, a discussion of, of an individual not like uh needing to get it out it doesn't feel like an itch that well it's, to be it's funny because to that end like looking at something like you know we you and me were just over the moon about widows last year and widows was a technically perfect movie it doesn't have any of this go i yeah. mean I, i'm pointing to my screen like i'm watching her smell right now on my computer and i'm you know it's possible it's you just do that. it's just the blue line of us talking um there's that's none. That's, of, I mean, that's life, man. And man. that was. And if I had to say, like, which movie was, if I had, if someone was kicking me in the face and they were like, rank your movies, rank these two movies, I would say, like, well, Widows is a better movie, because Widows is 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 when you have technical proficiency on that level, the rawness comes through in other ways. You know what I mean? The rawness is manifested in like the quality of the image or the perf- or the nature of a performance or um, a 
a turn of phrase in the script or a, or a line delivery. You know what I mean? Mm. This movie is all raw. It is from beginning to end. It is just a raw piece of film. Um, and maybe that's all it has going for it. But in my life now, I I I do want. I'm I'm searching for that rawness. When I see technical perfection coupled that enables a rawness to, um, to you know rise out of it, I'm I'm more than happy to you know take it and appreciate it and love it. But like, what I really uh, there's something about the movies like this and the movie we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, um, or like the Florida Project, um, or even Mother to an extent, like imperfect movies, but that the 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 tenor of them, the tone of them, um, rises them to a level that I kind of can't I can't shake them even when I'm watching them and even if I'm kind of bored, it's still just kind of like. I'm thinking about it, and I'm I'm interacting with it, and I'm engaged with it. Which is the thing I, I would say. Which, has, has, this a, is a long movie, but I don't think it's really boring. Booksmart never engaged me, not for even one second. Was I like, well, I'm I'm going along with this movie. I was just like, I'm watching a movie, and it is a movie that's happening. Yeah, this this is something interesting. Like like a lot of people, I think, will say this movie. Like I haven't read the reviews for it, but I think a lot of people respond to it as boring. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's so much boring as it just kind of wears you down. It yeah, you yeah, down. yeah. And so, like, it depends on how you go into that if you want that. And I, I didn't want that. It, it, I kind of tuned out because it gave me an excuse in that kind of, like, middle, like, of the beatdown to kind of, like, tune out. Tune out and, mm-hmm. I, and I kind of did. Well, I made the and comment. it took me to the fourth act to kind of, like, jump back I in. I made the comment when I was watching it is that, like, um, I didn't like Free Solo because it viscerally ruined my life. Like, I, I couldn't relax when i was watching it you know what i mean because i'm terrified of heights and it was freaking me the fuck out when i was watching it um i had kind of a similar i had not like a similar response because it's not the same movie obviously but like i was Wait, it's not the sequel physically engaged <laughs> i mean it's, it's elizabeth moss just you know climbing a mountain we'll see what happens but i was physically engaged with this movie you know what i mean and to the point where like so you were like oh where's you down i was getting every time when i felt worn down i felt like it was doing its job Mm -hmm. and i felt like i i appreciated it like it's brutalness and like the heaviness of what it wanted for me um but yeah so it's worth a watch i i i think I'm not giving it an extremely negative review. I don't like it, and and I'm excited to see what he does eventually. Um, but it, it just it wears me down. But I think it, it is worth a, a watch to see somebody who who can direct the shit out of a movie. Uh, oh yeah, a small movie. Well, and especially if you. I mean, it's just. It's definitely yeah. I, I it's not definitely not for everybody. But if you just kind of want, if you want to watch something interesting, with people that you know good actors that you know and probably like from a lot of other things and like you could do way worse i would recommend this over booksmart for all the reasons but that's you know that's because um it's me so um so i guess we'll be right back um as the rain just keeps dropping down on us here we're gonna have to switch umbrellas out here mine seems to be inverting um we'll be right back with our Number 60s.
Hello there and welcome back. Um, my number 60 um, has some has some context to it. Um, so I'll just tell you what it is before I kind of dip into uh, you know how I came to know this movie and love this movie. It is the 1967 Mel Brooks masterpiece, The Producers. Step one, we find the worst plane in the world, a sure fire flop. Springtime for Hitler. Step two. I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. I love you. What? I love you. What? I love you! Step three. You go back to work on the books. Only lists of backers. One for the government, one for us. Hey, I don't do it! You it! Step four. We open on Broadway. It is important to note, I think, that we are not talking about the remake of The Producers starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and Will Oh, Farrell. I watched the wrong one again. Did you? I mean, it's the same basic concept, but we're definitely not talking about that. Um, the Producers, you know, written by Mel Brooks, who won the Academy Award that year for Best Original Screenplay, which I think is weird. Um, Gene Wilder was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, um, which I also think is kind of weird. But I think in 1967... America was just enthralled to the Gene Wilderness of Gene Wilder. Um, Even that early, you think so? I think I think everyone just loves Gene Wilder, like forever. Everyone was just in love with him. Yeah, I think they was from from like early on. Um, it's the second movie. I think they loved him. America was different back then. Don't they forget. Saw, they saw Bonnie and Clyde, and we're like, oh, that small role in Bonnie and Clyde. This guy. Got something. This fucking guy. Um. The same thing happened with Gene Hackman, right? Wasn't he a Bonnie and Clyde guy? Was he a Bonnie and Clyde? I thought he was a Bonnie and Clyde I've seen that movie in forever. Um, You're right. He was. The year Mario is 2000. Fall. September. I was, as I may have said on this podcast before, and on the day I graduated from high school, which was June 2000, I got a job working at a record store. Uh, it was the job I had wanted my whole life. I just assumed I would do that forever. But everyone in my life was like, oh, you should go to college. You should go to college. You should go to college. So I took two classes that semester just because everyone told me that I had to. One was anthropology and the other was introduction to theater. Um, I made enemies with the teacher in the anthropology class very quickly by being a huge jerk. Um but the theater class was mildly interesting for a little bit in the sense that it was boring but entertaining. I liked reading the plays. Um, there was some very attractive girls in the class, which I really liked. Um, it was far away from my car, so I got to listen to a lot of music when I went there, which was, which was a, a net positive for me in the year 2000. Um, so I went to that class until he asked us to make a diorama. And then I said, no, thank you. I'm 18 years old. I'm in college. I'm not going to make a diorama. But what, one of the things we did before I left was he decided to put on this movie, The Producers by Mel Brooks. Um, who I hadn't seen it, this movie at that point. I had seen Blazing Saddles and obviously, you know, Robin Hood Men in Tights and Spaceballs. Um, I knew who Mel Brooks was, um, but I did not know the producers. And he played us 
the LSD scene when LSD is auditioning for the part and of Hitler and he played us the original like the springtime for Hitler intro number and like the first couple of scenes and um I was I was dying like laughing so hard that I was like tears were coming out of my eyes I had literally never seen anything so funny in my entire life um I think it would be less it's I love those two and like my love of this movie is honestly reduced probably to those two those two scenes um I think everything else around this movie and we can have uh, you know whatever kind of discussion we want about this movie um I don't think Mel I don't don't think Mel Brooks is great um like I don't think he's made a great movie from beginning to end he famously has terrible endings um and this movie is no different where like they try to blow up the theater that you know the the play is being produced in so they um you know so that it'll close and all this other stuff and then they are doing a play in jail blah 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 um but I think this one of the reasons this movie is pivotal is because there was a he asked right after we, he turned it off and again I was dying and he asked if anybody was offended by it. And there was a girl in the class who said she was Jewish and said she was very offended by it. And this is, this is 2000, so you didn't have to do trigger warnings before you did things in 2000. You could just spring things like musical about, like, you know, <laughs> how Hitler's going to do really great things. Um, and she was super offended by it. And then he was shocked, and then he kind of used me as like proof that it wasn't offensive. And he was like, well, look at this guy was just laughing the entire time. And I, it, it was, and I told him, I was like, that was easily the funniest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And even when I was, I was watching it by myself for this podcast, you know, eating a sandwich on my lunch break, how I, how I do. And I was, you know, at the LSD scene, um, when he's singing like love power, <laughs> and the movie switches like it's a great nothing scene but like you don't see I don't know if you notice this but like you don't see LSD's boots when you meet him when we meet LSD you don't see his boots and then when he starts singing you immediately see his boots that go up all the way up to his thighs oh, yeah. <laughs> up to his thighs and it's like a really it's funny in a really unsubtle movie like the movie is horribly unsubtle at that point it's just Gene Wilder screaming, Zero Mustel, like, Zero Mustelling, like, all over the place. You have all the old lady jokes. Um, you know, you have the, you know, the Swedish go-go dancers, 60s um, kind of spoof happening in there. Um, and then all of a sudden, so they're withholding the boots, and then he starts singing, and you see the boots, and it's, like, it's just so funny. And that's, there's all these little things in this, <laughs> in this movie that see that part sets it up for me like for that scene being funny and then the scene that always and then like the moment so it's not even a scene it's a moment the moment that always gets me in the springtime for hitler song is <laughs> when they're like through i think they're in like the last chorus and it's really slowed down and they're like cutting to the audience that's just kind of staring like stone-faced at what's happening and then they cut back <laughs> to the stage and there's just a bunch of people like hugging and like rocking back and forth and it looks like this really like vaguely chaotic but also really amateurish performance where they're singing like springtime for hitler and it all it puts me over the edge like i used to say i don't smoke i've never like smoked officially and 
one of the reasons is because like when I would get when I would drink at parties and I would go out and like have a cigarette with a friend or something like that, I would take like one puff of a cigarette and I would it would put me over the edge. Didn't matter how much I had to drink, I could I couldn't do anything else after that. I couldn't drive home, I couldn't function. Like that one inhalation of cigarette smoke like fucked up my head for like the rest of the night. And that is how like LSD's boots and that weird moment during springtime for Hitler do for me. They put me in like a different headspace. Um and like I've and you know I've never forgot I've never forgotten it and I'll never forget it and they're just it's just a part of my life forever. The whole experience of someone saying they were offended by this and then the teacher saying like well it can't be offensive this guy was cracking up hysterically. Um it's just it's like a, it's um, I have questions about the rest of the movie and I've kind of overanalyzed it over the last week thinking about like like some of the problematic natures of the movie we're going to talk about your movie um, some of those things, same things are happening in this movie in terms of like a objectification of things. I've kind of started to think of those things in the producers as spoofs um, of those types of movies. Um, but none of that stuff matters when coupled with the LSD audition in Springtime for Hitler. Springtime for Hitler is one of the great scenes in the history. When we do our pivotal scenes... Springtime for Hitler will be on my list. And that's the thing we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, like when the podcast gets closer to the end. True? Yeah, we talked about it. Oh, right, right, right. We did. We're going to do, like, I don't know how long the list is going to be. We'll do pivotal scenes, regardless of how long the list is, unless it's like the top three pivotal scenes of our life. Springtime for Hitler will be. We're going to do a top hundred. Yeah, that'll be. I mean, we got to do something after the. That'll be fun. Um, Springtime for Hitler will be, is maybe one of the most pivotal scenes of my, like, adult life. It's just and it it it's it never fails. It always fucking gets me in the exact same way. I remember that this, the year that I saw it, I went to my girlfriend's house, um, who was not my wife. You know, this is a long, long time ago. Um, and it was New Year's, and everyone was watching like New Year's things on the television, and I made them. I had rented a video of the producers and made them watch like the producers on New Year's Eve. I was not a popular guy that year. Um, but I was just like so enthralled with this, with the funniness of this movie. It was just, you know, I had to, everyone had to see it. Everyone had to know and, ex- and they didn't think it was as funny as I did. But I, and I still to this day think it's like one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Hands, hands down. I am, I am one of those people. I uh, just. That thinks it's the funniest thing you've ever seen no, in your life? It's, it's just, it's fine. It's, I, I can't. It's like one of those few films on this list where I, I don't have much to say. It's it's funny at parts. I don't think it's extremely well directed. No, oh no, um, and that's the thing. It's mel- I kind of agree with you in the sense that like a lot of this movie is just ad libbing Gene Wilder screaming Zero Mostel trying to get him to stop screaming, and it's not super funny. And like I like Mel Brooks overall. I, I, he's he's okay. But, like, we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, there are writer-directors who have come along who I think do the work better, who know, like, do that kind of similar absurdity uh, uh, better. Um, And so every time I see something like Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein or The Producers, I watch it, I laugh a couple times, the movie ends, and it is dropped out of my mind completely. 
and and to me, a lot of it has to do with a degree of reservation in this film. Like you really like the springtime Prittler sequence, and it's fun to me, but it feels really reserved and 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 slight in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like it does a lot of back and forth, but it doesn't have this big like over the topness to it. And to be honest, well, I think the over the topness is like in its premise. To be honest, I'm gonna say something here. I like the 2005 film a lot better. Ugh. Why? It just because it, it it does because of production goes value. The, it goes to that extra level. I, no, that's the thing. Um, uh, for me, with this, I, I don't think there's enough absurdity or strength in the writing itself, and I, and I think the the absurdity is comes in into that production, comes into that the nature of and performances and whatnot, withstanding like fucking Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane are, are not Zero Mustella or Gene Wilder in terms of those roles, and. You know, Will Ferrell's not as good as um, who's in the original. It's uh, oh Kenneth Mars. Kenneth Mars. I don't think any of the performances, and I don't think they. No, really he's Will Ferrell is. I actually think one of the big problems for me yeah, is that I because um, his friends Liebkind is just not. He's always. In it's on just the not joke. there. You yeah. know what I mean? Where it's he's where this friends Liebkind is like really like in character the whole time. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? And Will Ferrell is just Will Ferrell doing like a Will Ferrell thing. Um, but. That sequence has doesn't have this like kibosh to it. Doesn't have this like this 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 explosiveness to it. That that's kind of juxtaposed with the audience reaction. Well, and so um, and, and then that's like and, and so it feels there's a less slightness to it. And so something that something like this, where the premise is this is absurd, over the top, crazy concept of trying to like you know itself implode mm-hmm. a production. Um, ends up feeling much tighter and smaller. It doesn't have this explosiveness to it. That see, the remake does, and that kind of like hurts this kind of like big number, this big joke that this film kind of like yeah, hangs its hat on. I actually like the Larry, like the Curb Your Enthusiasm third season, where like Larry David gets cast um, as Max Bialystok in like, a, a, you know, the producers like taking over for Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Um, or you know he's in the California well, he, he's in the like, California actually, like version of that I like that better I than say I like Nathan Lane's this. A pretty good pantomime but Azir Mostel but he's, I don't he's I don't, fine I don't like I just, Nathan Lane I'm saying this to say Matthew Broderick is garbage oh I don't like Matthew Broderick and I just in I lots really of stuff, I but. just really wanted to bury Matthew Broderick <laughs> um the the conversation we had last week. Um, that got lost over uh, the best movie year ever. And we should we uh, could redo we that conversation. Because yeah. um, I do like the idea of summer film books. Mm-hmm. Uh, summer film reading books. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll come with a better team for that. Um, maybe rewatch that movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe rewatch Election. Oh, really? Because I, like, oh, I was trying to say, like, did I miss something? And I realized no. And I no. realized one of my biggest problems with that film is how bad Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon are in those films. Well, I feel like Matthew Broderick and this, like the when, same thing you were talking about it, with Nicholas DiGnasto, Diagnostino mm-hmm. is is like one of the, the shining stars in your film. I think that's the actor's name uh, who would go on the Star Trek and found us Nation Five. Like when he's one of like the ones you're like, oh that guy's good. And you're like, oh right. When Chris like uh, Chris, Klein Chris Klein looks looks good in comparison to Matthew Broderick, <laughs> I always you, know like, you got a problem. I always thought the problem with election is that like, um, and you kind of just mentioned this when you were talking about um, uh, Becky and her smell. In 
the sense that like there's got to be a degradation of character and Matthew Broderick starts that movie pathetic and like completely worthless and he ends the movie pathetic you know what i mean like there's no i know they want us to think there's a degradation of character but there's no degradation of character he's just terrible all the way through um but this is not like an election um episode because we both don't like election um, do. yeah i like but i th- i think i i think i know what you mean but I think there's. I think one of the reasons this is a pivotal film is because there still maintains. Um, it's so like my relationship to it is so personal. And one of the movies we're going to talk about in. Like wh- like in, in a year, is the same thing. It's almost like the one of the exact same scenarios I as well. Huckabees. I heard not. <laughs> we're not talking. Why do we always keep going back to I heard Huckabees? We have to do a bonus episode. I will not. Um. Where it's my interaction with the movie was so personal that it was it's just like cemented in my head as it's like the it's inherently it be, it became like inherently pivotal that day you know what I mean no, like I was never really gonna fair. and so like anything that like any other like a remake or whatever else was gonna do to it was never gonna shake my um like the hilarity that it inspires in me. You know what I mean? It just can't. It's just, it's so like ingrained in like my, my life. Which I, which I think, you know, the movie I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes is, is the same way. I rewatched the movie, you know, I'm going to talk about three times this past weekend. And I just realized that if I came to that particular movie now, it wouldn't do anything for me. Um, because there's like kind of, this more like a reser- like a smallness to it um, that mm-hmm. this producer's has that it, it would have kind of explicated the joke um, or, or the humor of it, uh, and, and that's the problem for me is like is like this. It's so it demands such like impact and demands such like a punch, and the movie never does that. Well, I think it's really interesting. We don't talk enough about because we haven't talked a lot about comedy. Like we talk about comedy like intermittently. Through the podcast, you know what I mean? We each have our comedies that we drop in. This happens to be a week where we're both, you know, it's both comedies for on our list. I would say um, I would say these are like the two like the two like stalwarts, the full four stalwarts of like absurdity comedy this week. Mm. Um But like yeah, four. There's um, four people involved in my movie. Oh, three I thought, people I thought you meant like the movies were the four movies we're gonna talk about oh, tonight. No, I meant <laughs> or like the, the four three, stalwarts. No, of I meant the three there's my movie. Takes three people. Sure, um, it's very subjective. It's like the most subjective thing that I think we're going to talk about: violence and comedy. Like your responses to violence and your responses to comedy. You know what I mean? Where in reality, I think we only have one comedy, like just outright comedy that overlaps on our list. Um, everything else is like is totally separate. We exist on separate planes of comedy reality in, in a way, in a lot of ways, except for one movie. I mean, I don't. And that I, seems very fair. I really don't have a lot of comedy on my list. Um, no, I think I only have five. I think, more, I think I have five more coming Five more coming up. I have three more legitimate comedies coming up. And I have like two legitimate comedies coming up and three violent comedies coming up. So, so yeah, um, but I think it's just interesting to think about. Like, it's just um, what you find funny is so is such a personal thing that I think for a lot of people, if you put two people in a room and ask them to make a list of their hundred favorite movies and then like say which ones are the comedies, you'd all you'd have completely different comedies um, 
on those lists, which is I did as we're talking about it, I'm finding it kind of fascinating. You know what no. I mean? Because we kind of went through the same thing with went through the same thing with Tommy Boy, um, and like with Naked Gun and with Step Brothers. Oh no, I um, think I think we both we both very much agreed on Naked Gun. Naked Gun is funny, but it's not like. You know, I don't find Naked Gun as funny as I find Step Brothers, Tommy Boy, or The Producers, or the other three movies that are like, coming up on my list later. Because your sense of humor is, is bad. Yeah, that's what that's what it is. You don't you don't you don't really appreciate the the Nielsen. Oh, I appreciate the Nielsen. I appreciate some some Nielsen, my friend. No, but I think he's the he's one of the least funny people in in this movie coming up. I'd agree. I'd agree. Maybe. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about producers? I, I think, think we, I think everyone. Let's transition. Everyone's feverishly writing down <laughs> their prediction for my number six. I got it. I, I, they're going to they're fax it to us. Before. It's like, I wonder, do we even need a break? Should we just like go right into it? Let's not do a break. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. My number 60. Sorry. Uh, what band is that that always does this? Uh, what band's the last break? Is that, uh, is that Guided, by, Guided by Voices? That doesn't do any breaks? No, the last one. The last, the last band. The, the, what's the... When we do our third block transition, our, our block... Yolo Tango. It's Yolo Tango. Sorry, Yolo Tango. Not this week, guys. Not this week. <laughs> you can't just do that. Um, it is the uh, David Zucker and J- David and Jerry Zucker directorial debut, having previously um, written a Kentucky Fried movie, and also Jim Abrams. It is Airplane. Never has the screen been so big... You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I can make half. What a brooch? What pterodactyl? Robert Stack. All right, Steve, let's face a few facts. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. Julie Haggerty. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Can you fly this plane and land it? Robert Hayes. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. A strikingly personal portrait of ex-fighter pilot Ted Stryker who fought in possibly World War II, possibly World War I, possibly Vietnam, or even the Korean War. It's the war. The war. The war. Who is now dealing the cold with a war. drinking problem and having had his life fall the shambles. 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 Life fall the shambles <laughs> when pursuing his ex-girlfriend Elaine, trying to hang on to the last aspect of his previous life, the life he... He had before that fatal day where the U.S. military destroyed him. Ted finds himself on a plane, suffering from tremendous post-traumatic stress because he hasn't flown since that day. It's like seven years. And is it is, and is then called to duty, following the harrowing sickness afflicting all the passengers, and he finds himself happening to communicate in in a dramatic ha- harrowing use the word harrowing again <laughs> fashion to get all the passengers to safety this is airplane a film that 
just tears at the heart. <laughs> yeah, the, it's the when Schindler's I, list of airplane <laughs> airplane comedies. When I first saw Airport, I believe it was Airport 77, I don't know. It came out in 77 or something like that. Airport, that movie that was about the airport, the disaster action ever saw the movie. Uh-huh. But I'm going with the joke. Uh, I was <laughs> like, I wish this movie had a little more gravity, a little more weight, a little more Robert Hayes, mm. maybe Peter Graves in a homoerotic Nambla style performance. A little more. Oh, that's it. That was the buzzer. The buzzer is Mario. Don't use the word Nambla. <laughs> okay. Oh, um, don't. That's the title. We previously don't talked use the word name. about. Uh, do not use that as the title. <laughs> we previously talked about Jim Abrams, David and Jerry Zucker film Airplane. We will not be talking about Ghost. This is the last time we talk about Z A Z on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the first exposure I had to to them. Um, I think, I actually don't remember really now. It was either this or Naked Gun. This past weekend, uh, I was up in the woods, the deep red country of New Hampshire, where people would who voted for Donald Trump were talking about stock options and driving ATV cars. So take that as you will. Um, we had a cabin with a, a tremendous amount of wasps. Just wasps. wasps everywhere. Yeah. It was a real wasp problem. Huh. And we tried to ignore the wasp problem every night. Nobody got stung, luckily, uh, by watching one of the large collection of DVDs that the uh, family had at mm-hmm. their disposal. Uh, we were not into watching the first three Fast and Furious movies. Or the first season of King of Queens. No. But one of the movies offered to us, in addition to Step Brothers, we, we passed Ooh. over that, was Airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, a movie I had seen multiple times, and thus its reason it's on my list, but that uh, two of my good friends had not seen. How, can I ask a question real quick, which I didn't ask before? We were How drunk. could you not have seen Airplane? Who hasn't seen Airplane? Oh, man, they haven't seen Airplane. They, they haven't seen Airplane. Well, no, sorry. One of the friends hadn't seen Airplane since he was young, and the other one had just never seen Airplane. Uh, but it doesn't even seem possible. Maybe it's because of my age, but, like, people that are... Like, I'm going to be honest. watched Airplane. Ready? I didn't, I didn't hear a Traveling Wilbury song until, like, three weeks ago. And I was like, oh, I kind of like... But them. that's fine. Why would you hear a Traveling Wilbury well, song? I thought they were okay. They're yeah, they're okay. they should be okay. George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, and Jeff Litter in a band together. You should be pretty good. Roy Orbison. And Roy Orbison. Everybody, has got somebody to lean on. Um, but you know, there's. Listen, uh, I don't know if we talked on this podcast about how much I dislike Malcolm Gladwell. Have we talked about that? Um, not on this podcast, but we have in our life. Okay, and so Malcolm Gladwell is outliers. He is a BA in psychology who stumbled into his journalism career and wrote a book that he had, I guess, some research uh, on. Who fucking cares? He's Malcolm Gladwell. His hair is stupid, and his face is equally stupid. Um, <laughs> but he wrote Outliers, which is just you know stretching the boundaries of uh, psychological analysis and self improvement. So, in response, I have created a system called the three thirty thousand person rule. Uh huh. And that is when you ever you want to ask yourself, how has this person not done this, or how did you not know that? Realize on that day that thirty thousand people. Have learned something new that you think, how could you not know that? Or that when you learn that, there are 
29,999 people being, or you learned something new, 29,999 people also being asked, how could you have not known that? Teaches you humility. By the way, uh, disclaimer, 30,000 person is uh, not researched, not studied, uh, completely arbitrary. Uh, I will eventually study this and write a book at like age 45 when I am a sad, lonely, terrible <laughs> journalist named Malcolm Gladwell. And then we'll find, have a podcast. So are like you saying that 30,000 people found Airplane last weekend? Today. Yeah. Today? Or last, weekend. or last weekend, yeah. Or last weekend. 30,000 people. Twenty nine. Well, I know at least one. 29,999 people probably found Airplane that, that same weekend. Oh. It's probably Which, a good weekend number, for people. The numbers don't work out because eventually well, you know what, everyone though? on the face of the earth will have seen Airplane. In 2019, I'm not sure if 30,000 people are having a good time watching Airplane. Fair. Do you know what I mean? Fair. And that is the interesting point to make. I had not seen this film in a good decade. I hadn't seen Naked Gun in a good decade. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. I saw Naked Gun, and I lost my fucking mind still, because that movie is clever. That is a movie, to me, where you can play... You asked me, what is a good audio clip to play for Airplane? And mm-hmm. I struggled, because Airplane really focuses in on the visual gags. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, like, yes. And quick. Yeah. Like, quick one-second gags. Like, if we could... If we could have a, somehow a visual explanation of a joke, the, the perfect opening uh, joke for Airplane would be Lloyd Bridges standing in front of a picture of Lloyd Bridges standing in front of a picture <laughs> yeah. of Lloyd Bridges. Or, okay, boys, let's get some photographs, and then they immediately Take proceed the to grab all the photographs. Um, so Naked Gun, in, in retrospect now, leans is more clever because there's a lot of dialogue well, just jokes. jokes. Just, yeah. And jokes. And it's like... A constant bevy, and I think mostly all of them land. Um, airplane is more of a sight gag thing, so it's mm-hmm. it's more of a, a low. I, I, I'm gonna say it's a lower level of comedy. Mm. It, it's it it never punches. I don't want to say punches up. It never winks at you. There's no jokes that like. There's a couple like sight gags that kind of wink at you. Um, Are you saying it's not high comedy when Ted throws his coat when he's disco dancing and it comes ooh, back to him? Yeah. Not, are you saying that's not high comedy? Yeah, there's a lot it's of... It's not Moliere there? There's a lot of jokes now that... I mean, Airplane is the perfect young boy comedy. And oh, that's, yeah. That's how I found it. Um, I think Naked Gun, a lot of the jokes go over my head. Uh, like the, the Julius Caesar joke. Which is... Goes... Is the, is the pinnacle the of... The Julius um, Caesar joke is a great joke. It is one of the best jokes in, in <laughs> comedy. I'm going to say this. It's one of the best jokes in a, in a comedy film ever for me. The delivery of that line is impeccable. Uh, the, 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 the script writing is impeccable. And just like the blocking of the And the both tag, of too, at the end. Yeah. We lost five actors that day. Damn good ones. Good ones. The damn good ones, just good ones. Just good ones. Yeah. Um, but man, if you're a young boy and you see this movie, it's great. It's got everything you want. If you're a 32, uh, almost 33, still viral. 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 Yeah. I would uh, hope at 33 you're still viral. You were coming from the gym when I got here tonight. I was. Uh, driving back from the gym. Yeah, you are like running. Not, with, uh, a, with a four-pack well, on headway. I was making a nice little joke from Viral, and you said coming from the gym. Oh, great. Yeah. Keep that one in. <laughs> um, I'm taking it out. Watching it now, 
I realize that this this movie has a lot of problems that Naked Gun doesn't in terms of the jokes it's making. Um, and it's it's number 60 because, once again, it, it hit me early. I love Zucker, Abram Zucker. I, mm-hmm. I'm a person who will defend Scary Movie 3 and 4 still. Well, yeah, I'm a person who will of... still actually say Ghost is a good movie. And it should not not have been nominated for Best Picture. And, guys, it was. I will not defend the fact that Damon Zucker won the best adapted or original screenplay Yeah, Oscar. I mean, well, we're going to talk we're about the Oscars move. in our next episode. So. Uh, like, Green Book is a Green Book. It's fine, but it's Green Book. Um but there are problems with this movie. There are some serious issues. You mean the naked its... lady running in front of the screen when everyone's freaking out? Which I mean, like, I, I guess that's is that. I don't have so much of a problem with that. It's kind. Of, it feels quasi innocuous. Well, it's innocuous, I mean, it's, but it's, it's. I mean, so this. Is, I'm more it, talking about like no smoking. No, 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 smoking, or like making like like the 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 jokes about the Spanish language, or the Middle Eastern person who's trying to detonate himself, or the uh, jive talk sequence, you know, or, or the various jokes about African Americans, um, well, about race and minorities that are that are one hundred percent, especially in nineteen eighty, punching down on people. Like you're making fun of jive talk, and you're basically saying it's a foreign language. Um, and these people aren't speaking English. And these, you know, they, they're 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 complete. And it's 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 lighthearted, I guess, in its presentation. But still, like having two friends watching it, going like, Ugh. "This is a problem." Yeah. Um, you know, well, that makes me realize like I this maybe isn't funny anymore. And they're you know, and that's kind of one of the things about I mean, the this per- is, is a topic to broach. There's two like minority friends. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. like it is something where it's like. Maybe that this isn't funny. Maybe if maybe like I found this funny as a kid, but now realizing this, and maybe that they that they look at it and they're kind of like they they lean back and I go really. Mm-hmm. I'm like okay, maybe this is a problem. I um I don't disagree with you. Um, and I think this is what I was this is kind of what I was talking about when we talk about the producers in the sense that I think the producers provides a little more context. Absolutely. So where some of the stuff um with the Swedish girl are presented as like era esque spoofs that Mel Brooks was kind of making. And of Mel Brooks these is kind of like hip kind of, you know, artsy. The, Oh, these are the kind of, this is the thing that we were doing in this. Mel we're Brooks doing is, now. You Mel know Brooks I mean? has always to me been more on the, the pulse of like progressive ideas. And he's, he's, and he's, he's, he's always, and he's willing to spoof that stuff. Back. So yeah. like, you know, oh, the movies Look at blazing the, saddles, blazing right. saddles is, is hyper progressive for its age and the way it's willing to turn itself back and punch up at the people who would, you know, discriminate against. Um, can't remember the actor's name, but the, he's the new sheriff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, he's never the brunt of the jokes. The jokes are the the miscreants around him, and the jokes are more related to the idea. The joke really is racism. Like racism yeah, is the joke. He's poking fun at racism that is in never, the producers. Yeah. He's poking fun at the the lifestyle that says like. All you need to do is get a record player and a Swedish girl like to be happy and she'll just dance and say, Do you want to make sex? It's problematic, but it's provo- the joke, it's, it's and even the joke about springtime for Hitler and, and and that all, you know, succeeding is is the joke that people will turn a blind eye to serious systematic problems well, in the and, society and because for the sake of quote unquote art. And because Matt's, Max Bialystock and Mel Brooks and Gene you know, or Zero Mostel, you know, um, who Fiddler on the Roof is his fucking show, and Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder are all Jewish. Yeah, you know what I mean. They knew what they were doing. 
in this movie, there are those movements where there's no context at all. It's just joke, 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 joke. And there are some moments where you're just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know about that. It bugs me as a guy who still will not let go of, like, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Like, because I think his movie reviews are still interesting. I literally turn them off as soon as he's done talking about movies. I've got no use for any of his political garbage. It's just, uh, but I think he's, an, I think he's an interesting thinker about movies. Thinking about that stuff, I want to say, as someone who's still a fan of his, I want to say, like, well, this doesn't matter. Context, you know, context from an age, an era standpoint. The same thing with like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So right after we did our Fast Times episode, he did an episode about Fast Times where he was like, you know, it's a great movie, blah 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 blah. And I found Fast Times to be like highly problematic. And I try to see these movies though, like through the lens of the year that they were made. And that's that's but interesting. But it's still, it's still, it's still hard. I think this kind of goes. I think this movie's a good um, example. Like, there's jokes in this movie that are still fucking funny to me. Oh, um, so funny! I mean, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scene is amazing. And never, and never like that's never punching down. Like the hell I don't. Yeah, and he's like, and he's he like, you carry, him. you carry these two on defense, you know, up well, and down for forty eight minutes. The best part of that, that, that joke is great. The best part about that scene, though, is he grabs that kid. He actually grabs that yeah. kid. Well, that kid gets shit on throughout that entire sequence. And I still like, even though, <laughs> even though, like, the, you know, um, even though you know, Over's joke, like, you know, Over's like overt. Do you ever hang around gymnasiums? Yeah, no, you ever see a grown man naked? Like all those, even those jokes are, are problematic. There, there's the joke isn't about like child molestation or child abuse. It's more making fun of this fucking weird mm-hmm. old man, like because that's like at a level playing field. Um, but I think this goes back to you remember our discussion in what I want to say episode ninety seven or ninety eight about. The, the era of time, the, the the age of time, where we talked about oh, yeah, yeah, Bob Mack yeah. cinema. Yeah. I mean, you had two differing perspectives on this. And I say sometimes you leave a thing, even if you enjoy it in the past. And you said, like, well, you got to look at it for the time. I think, I think, I think this, is, this is kind of that movie for me now. I, I, I wonder think... if this is that movie. Like, there's a lot of really good jokes for me. Like, like there are st- there is stuff that's funny, but when there are films that this team has made that are equally as funny and don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe that's another movie well, that so I here's... Like, uh, you know, yeah, the joke about, you know, oh, is there one, what did we have for dinner tonight? Oh, uh, well, they had two options, the fish and the steak. Oh, I remember. I had lasagna. Like, that's fucking hilarious. But you get those jokes in the Naked Gun films, mm-hmm. and you get those jokes in even, like, something that's a lower comedy, like Scary Movie 3 and 4, where you can kind of like, dig those out. Um and so, yeah, this is like that you can you what are the jokes, respect this what, and appreciate it. What are the jokes in this that you have? Because I think, I thought the Naked Woman one was gratuitous. I think like some Just like, because it's just like, well, why? Like, why? It doesn't need to be there. Um, what are the other things I mean, that I you're think, kind of I like think are over I the think line? The nudity jo- I think that nudity joke is kind of funny in the fact that it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a... To me, it felt like a joke about the exploitativeness of late 70s cinema. Mm-hmm. Like, because it's trying to be... An overrun, kind of like a a disaster film craze of the late seventies, like Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. Was Airport. there a lot of nudity in the Poseidon Adventure? But no, but on the same way, conversely, like especially in exploitive horror, which is kind of gaining ground, you get a lot of like nudity, like I spit on your grave, mm. and, and things that are really 
delving heavily into like sexuality and selling themselves in like the body of woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that joke makes sense because it is um, it's making fun of just the insertion, mm-hmm. and insertion, insertion. Wow, <laughs> insertion of um, you know nudity at in uh, those times, but. Uh, I think like like that jive talk scene and like the Spanish language written like the Spanish language or or foreign language where it's supposed to be on the um, on, on the signs mm-hmm. um, and then the Middle Eastern like or the, everyone killing themselves or the Jewish football the, Middle Eastern, the Jewish football player or the Jewish athlete brochure yeah here's exactly. something light oh here's a pamphlet about Jewish athletes exactly all those jokes to me are in the end they're they're punching down and like anything that punches down i i, I kind of feel like i i might have found them funny at a certain age but as i like get older you know and i realize the impact that they can have on the people who could see them like mm-hmm. if you're a jewish person i don't know like how you find do you find that funny mm-hmm. or do you find you know the language of african americans in a certain time period of time and, and like making fun of that funny it's kind of like you know I still people have problems with like i stand that like it, in certain like dialects of uh, 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 English, like where people say like I stand that, like I really am a fan of that, and people are like what the fuck does that mean? It's like maybe maybe realize that we have different ways of speaking, and mm. and like I think movies like this and, and things like that kind of further ingrain the fact that like this isn't real English. Well, let's, this isn't real yeah. language, and so, like I'm like uh, like I understand that at the time, and I understand at one point I found it funny, but now like. You know what relieved stuff like that in the past. So here's an interesting question. And maybe it's narcissistic of me to say that I think it's interesting. Um, I'm I'm a very big proponent proponent of like things disappearing. I think the culture hangs on too long to things that don't really matter anymore for the basic fact that they did matter at one point. I think Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a perfect example. I think a certain to a certain and we, we, age we group, both, we both kind of agreed. Yeah, that. to a certain age group, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a significant thing. But to another age group, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a problematic slash non-existent thing. Um, has airplane like something that I just I assumed was like so ubiquitous to the culture that like don't call me Shirley or you know I'm, whatever else from this movie you want to kind of point to. Um, was so entrenched that like there was no, it was just like a thing that you had to see at some point. The fact that like a couple of your friends haven't seen it yet, um, who are younger than me, is around my age is telling to me. You know what I mean? That like maybe it's time for something like Airplane to just kind of like well, that's the thing and I, become I think... something that you can have a personal relationship with, but that the culture as a whole doesn't have a relationship with anymore. Because I think at one point the culture as a whole had a relation, like a very significant relationship with Airplane. That's the thing. I think. I think in, in a lot of ways you respect the idea of what the foundation laid. Mm-hmm. Um, much like to use a really hyperbolic example, respect the foundations of like what something like Thomas Jefferson or, or some of the founding fathers or did. Michael Jackson or Michael Jackson did. Um, with the foundations and, and and the changes they made in terms of the dialogue of the genre, or mm. in terms of the dialogue of a country, or mm-hmm. in terms of the dialogue of whatever. But then, in retrospect, you realize the fucking really flawed people. Who ex- and I, I'm not saying Zucker Zucker Abrams are, are, are super flawed, flawed humans. No no, 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 no. I'm just saying, like, in 1980, the shit's really acceptable 
because people because there hasn't been a dialogue yet. No, 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 yeah, this is just... There what, hasn't been people this is speaking what life out, was like, like, culture hasn't said, like, fucking, you can't do this, you know? I mean, and, and maybe that's why, and that's a why, like, certain segment of it had, but not, like, the mainstream culture. And that's why looking at, like, the Me Too movement, like, we had a conversation about, um, you know, Aziz Ansari, at, like, versus, like, Harvey Weinstein, and Aziz Ansari, it's like, oh, this is a growing experience for you, you fucked up, grow from that, but, you know, you're mm-hmm. fine, sort of thing. Like, you could still be a part of the dialogue. Whereas you look at something like Harvey Weinstein and go like, no, you knew at the time this was wrong. And I think that's the example of here. Like at the time, you know, maybe there was some like whispers of, you know, I wasn't even born. Neither of us were born then, but, but really these, I know from even the mid nineties, these jokes were fine. Like Mm -hmm. in the culture, they're considered fine. But now that we're at a certain position, you know, you don't, villainize or vilify the people who made those jokes or who, 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 who did them. Uh, but you also look at the film and be like, this is a relic. And, and you look at it as a relic of its position. In well, time. and so like, I was just listening to a podcast. Especially when you have, and I'm just, just off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You finish. Especially when you have an example like Naked Gun, which isn't like, has some of the sexual jokes and whatnot still too, but isn't really doing those race jokes right. or isn't doing a lot of that punching down. It's really just like, punching straight into absurdity well that's i mean so we're you know to tie this to kind of how we started this episode like we you know um if you were i was listening to podcasts on the way over here about um book smart and you know the the female commentator was talking about like you know some of the feminist ideals that this was you know book smart was said to be that she believed it was complicating um i would argue that something like Booksmart is going to be left on like the floor where like because the culture as a whole in 2019 is seems to be responding more viscerally and more emphatically and ultimately more significantly to like the oppositional feminist ideas of something like her smell you know what I mean Mm -hmm. where it's not just kind of like stated from a Ruth Bader Ginsburg um you know, whoever, Rosa Parks, whoever else you want type of framework but from a female as female, female as as changer, as, um, I don't know, there's a word I'm looking for. If I, was, if I spoke German, I'm sure there'd be a really long German word that I can use to describe it. Um, and... Uh, this is not as airplane versus naked gun is obviously not as significant as this, but I think it speaks to the same idea where, um, at some point the culture decides this thing did it better. So we're going to keep this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think what you're saying is that airplane culturally is irrelevant. And I think the problem with naked gun is that it has OJ in it. So now I've had to listen to podcasts about Naked Gun, and they're talking about, like, well, Naked Gun is unwatchable now because OJ's in it. Well, it's like OJ is not really in Naked Gun very much, and it's he's, like, the least funny thing in Naked Gun. So I think we can still watch Naked Gun and feel pretty yeah, and good about has, ourselves. And he's still, he has such a minimal role in Naked Gun, too. Like, he's on right. bed for all but... Five minutes of it. Well, so this, the thing, culture. That's, that's a better example for Nick Gun, twenty-two and a half or thirty-three and a third. Um, but I just think it's interesting what like we've kind of decided as a whole that the culture will, the culture will tolerate X, but it won't tolerate Y. And I don't, the I culture mean, demands X, but it doesn't demand I Y. I don't think 
I don't think airplanes gotten to that point yet. I don't think it is either, but it's obviously. I, but I, I think it's a conversation worth having. Yeah. Um, just because. Just comedy in 1980 was just so different. Yeah. Than it was. From a base standpoint, than it is, you know, a couple years. Than it would be a couple years later, or 25 years later, or 30 years later. Yeah. No. You know exactly. I mean? And. And that's why it's like it's 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 not problematic in the sense of of the people involved, like no no they're not bad like none of these people are bad people. It was just when it was. Yeah, exactly. It's just a you look at it more as a relic of when it was, and that's how I kind of see this movie now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still number sixty pivotal because like this was my introduction to like sure, real yeah, yeah, yeah. grounded absurdity comedy, but um, you know just. I'm I'm good leaving in the past now. Mm. I feel like we should play some sad music. <laughs> what's the, what's the theme song? It's been theme song. The it's like that piano theme song where it's like Moonlight ah. Sonata. No, no, what's it? Um, if you want to, well, I'm doing the Godfather theme. Jesus, we should play. I'll play the Godfather theme over this. What? Let me timestamp this one for. Right, got it. All right. So yeah, anything else? No, I think that was a good enough conversation about airplane. Right. Not talking about the jokes or anything. Not actually really talking about the meat of the movie. Do itself. you want to talk about jokes? No, I, they're they're good. It's, well, it's worth it's worth a watch, but no watching it. That there's stuff that's in it that's just. I think it's I think it's funny how dated it is. Yeah, because the like Folgers jokes or the for, from here to eternity jokes. Like I think those still kind of work. They do not work. If you showed a twenty year old that scene and like they'd be like, "Why? Is, what's happening? Why is there so much water? And there's seaweed." But you wouldn't understand like where it comes from. You know what I mean? I have friends who are in their twenties who watched that movie, and, and still got that though. From here to eternity. Mm-hmm. They know what that movie is. Yeah, I think I think that scene's pretty well renowned by this point. Huh. But the Folgers thing, I had to explain, like the you know he never has his, a second cup of coffee at home. I was like, oh, that's based that. around a Folgers. I love that scene. Like that's based around a Fol- uh, Folgers, right? That's uh, Folgers or Maxwell House. One of those. Yeah, yeah. But it's based around a coffee joke from the late seventies or eighties. Uh, I love those. <laughs> I love the those thing parts. About Naked Gun is either Naked Gun either has so many fucking jokes or is um so timeless now that like you don't have to explain anything in that movie. Mm. There's no moments where like like the only part is you have to explain like who Reggie Jackson is maybe. Um yeah, I know right yeah Reggie Jackson well Reggie Jackson nineteen eighty five was not or what year was Naked Gun? Eighty seven, eighty eight was not like a significant human anymore either. But, you but know. I think Reggie Jackson is still like so Famous now, but you know what's what? great? You no, know, it's also great about airplane. The queen's still the same person. Yeah, the queen's still the same person. I mean, one of the things that I noticed this <laughs> she time, looks the same. One of the things I noticed this time when I was watching airplane that I've never noticed before was the initial conversation between like the the loudspeaker people. That's it's still a good. <laughs> like this is about the abortion, isn't it? It's like, wait, what? Uh, that's, that actually that dates well. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it dates extremely well. Yeah. And it's sad. Isn't that sad that dates extremely well? I don't want to talk about it. Let's move but on. We can agree that does date well. And if you don't think it dates well, uh, go fuck yourself. But if you have any <laughs> questions to ask yourself, and I say that because of the fact that like, if you think 
abortion should still be a topic. Yeah, we've had this conversation about other stuff. Just stop listening to our podcast. Yeah. We won't be offended. And if you send us, like, hateful emails, like, we will respond to them with equal hate. You know I'm not going to be offended? Because you're a lesser person than I am. Mm. And that, like, you literally have no reason to still be a person. Yeah. This includes that's, the Louisiana. That's actually my statement. This yeah. includes the Louisiana governor, who should be ashamed I, I of read that. But, like, the Alabama and Georgia thing, really go fuck yourselves. Literally. Because you want to. And just, you know what? Live your life. Do it. You want to, so just do it. <laughs> just accept who you are and fucking move on with the yeah. world. <laughs> and then, you know what? When you do that, we'll accept you back into society. Mm. And back into 21st century, where we're, everyone else is living. Mm-hmm. But if you're a normal person and have normal things to say and or, you know, have complaints about us, feel free to complain to us because we will 100% accept that. Like if you think we should be less political, well, maybe we're not going to do that. But if or you have complaints different... about our thoughts and opinions, yeah. you can uh, complain to us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. And I accidentally took the Twitter. <laughs> from you. Or you can uh, message us or leave a comment, I think, or tweet at us. Is or that DM what you say? Us? At um, uh, twitter.com slash filmpivotal. That is correct. Um, I, or, I, I, <laughs> I always do Twitter and I took it from well, you. I don't phone. know what the language is for Twitter, so I'm not sure how to like describe right. what you should do if you're going to you talk to us, us on Twitter. Um, you can is hashtag is? us. Oh, God. Add us. Yeah, add us. Or hashtag um, us. You can go to Pivotal if Film. If you hashtag us, we probably won't find it, though, because they would never search the hashtag Pivotal Film. No, no, no. Wouldn't that be crazy if we searched that? It's like, Bruh. Yeah, that'd be funny. There's like a thousand messages. That people had a big problem start. No one listened to us until Airplane. And then everyone was like, Airplane? No, what? people are still talking about House That Jack Built. We have a lot of unanswered questions about that. We're going to have to do... I maintain we're going to do a year anniversary episode of The House of Jack Built. I actually can't get it out of my head. And a lot of the things that I've watched, I'd compare to House of Jack Built. I really? think it's a fairly profound movie. Last act for sure for me, but beyond that, a lot of it's kind of escaped my head. It's still really solid. Well, I think it's just uh, I was reading a book about movies about movies, and they were talking about like um, breaking the waves. And I was just like, all this stuff is all this stuff they were saying about breaking the waves, and they were like, oh, he's just a provocateur now. He's not like an actual filmmaker. I was like, he does all this stuff. He does all the same fucking shit in um, the House of Jack built. But where I think the interesting thing about the House of Jack built and like to track is well, and we're going to talk about this in like. Which we're on episode sixty, so we're gonna talk about Lars von Trier again in like twenty one or twenty two episodes. He is subtly, re- not even subtly, he has slowly removed all religiosity from his movies, and now it's literally just, I'm trying to build a worldview out of nothing. And how does that how does that work? Yeah. Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, we, it just results in this happening. Speaking about Lars Runcher, I, I was rewatching the opening couple episodes of the show Barry. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a great joke where they're talking about doing uh, dialogue sequences. Mm-hmm. And they're just email movies. And at some point, uh, and, and they're talking to the police, and the police don't haven't seen any of them. There's like, oh, we did a dialogue scene together with Breaking the Waves. And both the cops are like, I've never heard of that, never seen that. And then like, eventually they go, oh, Dogville. And they're like, we haven't seen that. And all of a sudden, one guy goes, oh, wait, no, no. I've seen that. I was like, <laughs> I like that. Because for some reason, I think that's like sneakily like everyone's introduction to Lars von Dogville, you think I so? I think so. Huh. Because Nicole Kidman? No, because I think, I think if you're on, if you're 
I think if you're in 2004, you're flicking through the channels, and you have the premium package, you slip upon Nicole Kidman standing on an empty stage with tape. You're just like, what the fuck you is stop, this? And then you, you, you st- you're stuck there for three huh. hours. And you feel you bad. Can't, you can't, and you can't move. Yeah. You're literally frozen in space. Yeah. We should do a Dogville special sometime. I'm always pro doing Lars von Fear both episodes. Um, but yeah, until... If you're not pro, that you can, you can tweet or, us or you can visit our website. Visit our website, pivotalfilm.com. And it's got lists of the movies that we've talked about and the beers we drank and how to subscribe to us and links to our Twitter and whatever else we've got going on there. Um, but until then, we'll see a movie. Dogville, maybe. Drink a beer. Probably not Headway. Not Headway, maybe. Maybe another beer. We love you, Counterweight. We. Like, here's the thing. I really do really like Counterweight. counterweight I just don't love like Headway. Their flagship. It's weird. It's weird. Make Spiral Blue Label Spiral Architect. Make that your twelve dollar flagship, and I will die of cirrhosis yeah. by the end of 2021. Um. So Mario will not talk to you that week. <laughs> <laughs>